So this is one of these, uh, those not so very frequent occasions where between the original planning of the, of the seminar and the event itself, the reputation of the, of the guest speakers and the resonance of their work has risen several notches from what was already a high base. Um, Maria Stepanova has been recognized uh, for the best part of two decades already, despite her youth, as one of the foremost contemporary Russian poets, uh, especially in the longer form of ballads, um, poetry cycles, narrative poetry, the poema. Um, she is also an essayist, a translator, um, and author of one of the most important prose works of recent years, which we'll be discussing tonight, In Memory of Memory, uh, which when it was published in Russia in 2018, I think, uh, or 17, uh, receives the Big Book Prize, um, regularly comes top of the lists of, of, of most significant book of, of the past 20 years or so in, in, in Russian literary lists, and is now proving spectacularly successful in, in Sasha's um, superb translation. Uh, apologies for all the superlatives, but in this case, I totally stand by them. Um, Maria is also, in case this doesn't get mentioned in the course of the evening, editor-in-chief of the leading independent cultural publication on the Russian internet, um, Kolta.ru, which many of us depend on for um, to be not just updated, but for, for, for um, extensive articles on cultural social issues in Russia today. And before that, she was editor of its predecessor, Open Space. So tonight we're going to be discussing and reading from uh, three books that have appeared this year. I don't know whether that was part of a big plan, Maria, um, to have them all come at the same time or serendipity, but that's um, In Memory of Memory, um, published here by Fitzcarraldo in the UK. Um, a volume of poetry, especially from the last 10 years, uh, The War, um, War of the Beasts and the Animals, published here by Bloodax. And, um, and thirdly, uh, a collection of uh, poetry, poetry and essays called The Voice Over, um, published, by, um, um, published by Columbia University Press. I'm not quite sure why I'm hesitating since, um, along with Stephanie, I'm one, I'm one of the um, members of the editorial board for that series called the Russian Library um, with the support of Read Russia. And two of those books, the first two I mentioned are translated entirely by Sasha, um, who will be familiar to many in Oxford where she studied, um, where now she's poetry and poet in residence at St. John's College, Cambridge. And Sasha is a celebrated poet, most, her most recent collection, Deformations was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. And as, as we all know, she's an outstanding translator of contemporary Russian drama, uh, poetry, and prose, and was also for a number of years editor of uh, Modern Poetry in Translation. And she remains, not least on her active Twitter feed, an advocate for exciting new voices um, from all around the world, especially in poetry. So when The Guardian uh, wrote in a major profile of Maria Stepanova that 2021 is the year of Maria Stepanova, it's really the year of her and Sasha Gadil together. It's a literary partnership um, that I'm sure is going to be remembered as an exceptional one, not least for their shared bilingualism um, and their erudition across two, two literatures. They've been working together um, on Maria's work for, for, a, um, for a long time now, over a decade. And most interestingly to me, they're now also working in both directions so that Maria is translating um, some of Sasha's work, poetry into Russian. Um, and in one of the many interviews, uh, events they've done recently, I was, I was very struck by um, your comment, Maria, that, um, that your own poetic projects and your own original languages are quite similar in a way, or require the same effort. For example, you said that to find a way to make the war in Don, Donbass a fit subject for poetry required the same effort, you said, as for Sasha to write in defamations about Eric Jill, um, the renowned artist, not to mention of religious art, um, who was also an abuser, um, sexual abuser of, of his own daughters. We're going to turn first to um, In Memory of Memory um, before turning to the poetry later, later in the event. Um, and um, yes, I wasn't the only person almost to be surprised the other day that it didn't take the International Booker Prize for which it was shortlisted, um, but um, Many congratulations for reaching that shortlist. I was sorry to see it didn't win. But, um, I know that uh, regardless of that, it's going to have a, a wonderful life and it really is having a wonderful life in English. Um, Sasha, I wonder whether you would be happy to uh, 
I think it would be best to, to have an introduction to this book, this, this long 500 page work of nonfiction, or romance, as, we, as it's called in the subtitle, we'll get, we'll get to that question, but it would, be, it would be great to have an introduction from you in your words as its translator. I had a really good introduction prepared. I've just got lost in what you were saying and listening and thinking about all those things and translating Maria and Maria translating me. So I have to just gather my thoughts really fast. And actually um, gathering my thoughts is probably the last thing I should do to try and describe Maria's book because it is the most capacious sort of um, endeavor really. It, it opens, um, as those of you who've read it will know, with the death of a relative and a lot of uh, a sort of inherited legacy of papers, materials, photographs, which um, makes the narrator begin what is really uh, a very long, thoughtful meditation on the nature of history, memory, um, on how to relate to the dead, to our ancestors, um, and what to, um, what to make of them and what they make of us. And she uses in the search for some sort of truth. Lots of examples from um, the visual arts, particularly and literature, um, from photography, from, um, from painting, and weaves a sort of cultural um, shape or a sort of body around this study of the past and memory. Um, and I think that's more or less all I can say about it. I'm often asked about genre because it is called a novel or romance. And all I can say is that when I was translating it, I was following very closely behind the voice rather than thinking about the overall shape. So in some ways, I'm the least qualified person to talk about uh, this book because um, I, I feel like I, I, I trailed through it like a, like a worm uh, or, a, or, a, or an insect going through all the words one by one. Um, and I'm often surprised by reviews of the book, which reveals startling new sides um, of Maria's project to me, although I spent a year inside it. Thank you, Sasha. That's, that's a great way to begin. I mean, as you say, the book covers such an enormous range of, um, sort of both artistic and intellectual activity, as well as, of course, such a range of human experience, especially lived experience in the 20th century. Um, has, a, has a broad appeal for the general reader, but also in an academic context such as we're in now, it's clearly going to have a great appeal, I think, for scholars in memory studies and cultural theory, material culture, visual arts, um, 20th century history, Jewish history in particular, uh, and Russian and world literature. It covers all these themes. Um, but all of these topics have a kind of center to which the book, to which Maria, you keep returning, a question that you keep worrying away at why are we so fascinated by the past? And what are the consequences of this, as you call it, enchantment with memory? And um, you treat this enchantment as a, as a global phenomenon. You've got a lot to say about social media of today. Um, it's something that's very prominent in the gaps between apparently weightier topics that you treat. But the genesis of the book is clearly in Russian history and Russian literature. And that's kind of where I'd like to start um, with, 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 with a question, and not least because of the nature of this event, a seminar for, for, for um, students in, 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 in various aspects of Russian studies. Um, so my question is, am I right in, 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 reading this book as, in reading this book as, amongst other things, a kind of reckoning with specifically post-Soviet culture? The, the difficulty that post-Soviet writers and artists in general have had or perhaps their reluctance, the reluctance they had to turn away from the past. I mean, because I remember that even back in the 1990s, um, many people were anxious about the extent to which Russian culture, especially Russian literature, could ever break free of the past. So an author like Viktor Pelievin, who of course is very famous for writing about the present, which is quite unusual among Russian writers, mm -hmm. criticized other writers for, in his words, heeding off Stalin's corpse. I remember that quote very. Strongly, it came in an interview um, in, 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 in a scholarly volume. Uh, but since then, we've had new waves of Russian writers, maybe from Vodolaskin to Priliepin to many others, whose most famous works are also set in the past. And so is your book, among other things, an attempt to sort of point modern Russian culture in a different direction? Um, and if so, which direction? Um, 
Uh, well, uh, well. First of all, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for for inviting me and uh, for uh, all your kind uh, words. Uh, it really means uh, means the world to me. And uh, thank you for the question. It's uh, the one I'm struggling with for for years because I don't think that uh, this book of mine is uh, an attempt to to show someone the way to lead some something to to to, to anything because uh, I am as lost myself in this in this maze of things, events, uh, notions, concept. Uh, of our common past as any other writer. So I'm not in the position to, to, to make uh, decisions uh, or to signify something. I'm as enchanted uh, with the past mm -hmm. as uh, my co-citizens. And uh, I suppose that um, <clears throat> this book is the result of this enchantment and a futile attempts uh, to get rid of it. Uh, sometimes it works uh, well enough for me to be uh, to be mm, to, to be clear to get a clear vision of how far away we are uh, from well getting back to any concept of nowness, nowadays, uh, whatever one may call it. And uh, so I've been thinking and rethinking this strange, uh, this uh, strange codependence uh, uh, our society, our literature is having around this subject of the past. And uh, I think that it must be somehow connected with the strange situation of Soviet Russian literature. It used to it was it was experiencing since the iron curtain or maybe even earlier since the late uh, 1930s when the russian literature was for, forcefully brought away from the general european or western conversation so we were living for decades and decades in a certain well solitary or solipsistic world where, well, our, um, we were subject to keep a dialogue with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is a problem that has two sides because on the other side of the curtain, uh, things that were written in Russia usually were, um, had been regarded as, uh, as a straightforward reporting from, from a troubled society, from a horrible place, from, well, some different kind of people who are living uh, the lives that are so totally unlike anything a general uh, British or American citizen could experience that uh, the main thing was definitely the information not the quality of writing. And so, you know, that Shalamov stories were heavily edited. And, uh, well, um, this is a long story that could uh, take us ages to discuss. But I think that this feeling of being left alone uh, with our history in this, well, cabinet of curiosities or a castle with, with ghosts, uh, being left there alone for, for some 50 or 70 years, uh, it had to change the way we are operating when it comes to the past. So all I can say is I would love to make myself move forward to the future, distant or not so distant. And that maybe with the start of the pandemic, something has changed, not only for Russia, but for all the world. In fact, you've continued, I noticed from the essays collect, collected in, in the voiceover, you've continued to write about the reasons, as you see it, for this enchantment with the past. And one of them you know, in your essay, um, Today Before Yesterday, you write powerfully about how, how Russians, in your view, live in a time without a present, 
uh, like sort of presentless time. Uh, hence all this kind of scavenging through history and without a clear image of the future, fear of the future, you quote Boris Groys. Um, but in, in cultural terms, it strikes me that this enchantment of the past particularly affects Russian prose. When we, and I'd be interested to get Sasha's perspective on this. You know, you're somebody who's translated in your, you know, your first translations, I, I think among them were, were of Russian drama and of the new Russian drama that was at its outset, at least certainly you know, to today, very much concerned with depicting or uh, giving voice to, the, to, to experiences in the present and that way to making a break with the past. So. I don't really have a specific question. I'm just curious about your view on this whole topic and how, how it relates to maybe this question of genre of drama and prose. Um, well, what I can say is that relates back to what Maria was saying is that when the first new drama uh, was staged in uh, London at the Royal Court Theatre, it was seen very much as an information um, um, giving sort of exercise and um, I was alarmed by the number of reviews and reports about the plays that were to my mind quite ethnographic really um, and uh, one of the most telling was um, I'm, I'm just trying to oh yes was a critic a well-known critic who likened Vasily Sigurd's play to uh, Gogol's um, The Lower Depths and I thought that was remarkable, that mistake, because um, it, it, was, it was as if the whole of Russian drama had just been um, elided, and this was just another example. So there was no attempt to really look at the content of the play, um, or even to compare it to another real play. <laughs> but, so I think that there is a problem with the perception, or certainly was a problem, and I think it still exists with the perception of Russian new writing. Um, and its relation with its histo history. And, and Maria, returning to, to the memory of memory and to the, uh, this question of the enchantment with memory, I mean, one of the questions that that raises for you is the possibility that it's, it's not the past itself that we are seeking, but a, a fantasy or an image of ourselves in the past. This is a kind of skeptical take on, on, on this enchantment that, that runs through the book. You're skeptical of the way that we romance our history. That's why you give the book the subtitle of romance, you know, in allusion to Freud's theory of family romance as a way that um, children often create glamorizing fantasies about imaginary rather than actual parents. So that we think we're salvaging the past, but in fact, we're effacing it with, with ourselves. So when you call the book um, in memory of memory, uh, should the second memory sort of be in scare quotes and quotation marks, as it were, as part of your point that it's not really memory. Well, maybe not in quotation marks. Uh, when I'm thinking of this, uh, this title, which is uh, sometimes uh, getting distorted in, uh, in uh, the Russian reviews. And uh, it is quite interesting because uh, people are mostly referring not to that, uh, well, uh, gloomy title in memory of memory that is uh, marking a certain, well, uh, range of impossibilities and unfilad of impossibilities, but they prefer to name it simply memory of memory, mm -hmm. as if mm -hmm. memory was a kind of a double storage unit, uh, a treasure chest that is containing another one with, 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 uh, with memories even more safe and more highly condensed. So, so yes, it is, uh, it is hard to, 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 to say goodbye to the possibility of a real uh, reconnection, uh, of a real comeback. And uh, that's uh, an experiencing I was bumping into uh, throughout writing the book and researching it, I was uh, I was visiting places, seeing people trying to find some bits and scraps of the past uh, that would fit uh, a decent puzzle, a puzzle that would be maybe uh, not exactly solved, but at least it would look convincing for at least for myself. I wanted to make this uh, this oval or a storyline 
or a well normal straightforward narrative that could deal with with my story or with our common story uh, in a normal way but it it uh, doesn't work this way I'm afraid well at least not well not not for me not for Russia and not for Europe and so this matryoshka is getting more and more wide it is a huge global matryoshka uh, so yes the the, the 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 title is a memorial of a number of impossibilities okay I, I think at this point maybe it'd be great to actually hear um a, 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 a short discrete fragment from from the book I mean, the book is made of so many different units that can be taken in, in isolation and uh, we cho we've chosen just a uh, I think it's about two and a half pages from from fairly on in the book and it's about um, photography which is one of the main um, motifs and, and concerns of the book the nature of photography what it does to us what we do to it to images that we see um, so um, Sasha, I thought, yeah, if, you, if you're happy to read, um, read, read this bit, um, which comes, um, as I say, it's page 79 to 82 of the book, um, and I'll, I'll hand over to you, and then maybe, um, Stephanie, if you want, want to take up the conversation afterwards with, with a question, that'd be great. So, Oliver, just to check, I'll read from the Russian collector, um, yeah. and that's to the end of the chapter, right, I think. Just, yeah. 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 A Russian collector uh, bought a box of family photographs in Sri Lanka. They impressed her in some way, so much so that a year later, she returned to buy the whole archive and began a search for the vanished family. She even found documentary traces of them, although none of them had lived into the new century. She then did everything she, she could to give them the strange immortality sometimes possessed by objects that have lost their owners. What was it about the photographs that made them stand out from the common crowd? Perhaps that which sets the museum exhibit apart from its more ordinary siblings, a subtle quality that gives it the right to preferential attention. None of the photographs in the archive, the father Julian Rust was a professional photographer, served the utilitarian purpose of the mere preservation of existence. A visual perfection gives each image the magnetic and enchanting sheen of an exhibit. A family in the snow under the pine fronds, a child on a sledge with a baby fawn, bathers, horse riders, German shepherd dogs. All the pictures look just like film stills and the viewer is drawn in, waiting for the scene to change and new scenes to appear. He needs to find out what happens to the subjects of the photos. There is such injustice in the way that people and their portraits cannot escape an immediate and basic inequality. The difference between the interesting and the not so interesting, between what draws our attention and what doesn't. Everything is in silent sympathy with the tyranny of choice, always on the side of the beautiful and the charismatic, to the detriment of everything that has no claim on our attention and so remains on the dark side of this world, especially our bodies with their entirely pragmatic agenda. Our preferences have nothing to do with age or upbringing. Even three-month-old babies vote for beauty, health and symmetry. And this is unjust, just as the dictatorship of the viewer or watcher with his unfounded demands on the image is an unjust one. The word watcher in Russian has a second, less obvious meaning. In the language of prisons, camps, and the criminal underworld, known by a significant proportion of all Russian speakers, the watcher is the one who sets the rules and makes sure the others follow them. So perhaps we could characterize the relationship between the watcher and the photograph the reader in the text and the viewer and the film are small episodes of power, like ticket sellers in the museum halls of random access memory. Both the rules and how they are followed depend on this relationship. But let's not pretend that the watcher is a righteous judge. His rules and his choices are not God-given, they are human. Worse than that, they are criminal. He is intent on the acquisition, absorption of the foreign body his taste is based on the rights of the strong, 
when surrounded by the weak, or the living when surrounded by the dead, who were deliberately denied all their rights. Maybe that's why I love photographs that need no interlocutor and have no desire to engage with me. They are in their own way, rehearsals for non-existence, for life without us, for the time when the room is no longer ours to enter. A family is drinking tea, the children are playing chess. The general bends over the map, the baker's assistant lays out the cakes and we can satisfy satisfy our ancient and enduring desire to gaze into every one of the windows of the house of a thousand windows. The point of this dream is surely to be someone completely different for a short while, to escape ourselves. Most old photographs can't answer this need. All they can do is insist upon their own integral selves. Their identity is theirs, but this world is ours. Photographs that failed to live up to the photographer's hopes are the unrealized scraps from a manufacturing process, a running dog blurred to an unending streak, someone's shoes on a wet pavement, a chance passerby in the frame. All this waste was filtered out and destroyed in the age of printing on paper, but now these very pictures have a special attraction because they were not intended for us or for anyone. They belong to no one. And so they belong to me. These moments that survived by accident and are freed from all obligation, stolen from life, by life itself. These images of people are utterly impersonal and this is their advantage. They relieve the viewer of the burden of succession, historical memory, bad conscience, and a sense of indebtedness towards the dead. In return, they offer a sequence of images of the past and future. The more random, the better. These pictures are not of Ivan and Mary, they are of contingent beings, him and her, her and her, light and no one. Freedom from meaning gives us the opportunity to add in our own meaning. Freedom from interpretation makes a mirror of the image a square pool in which we can immerse any version of events we please. Photo trouvé, little foundlings, useful in their very readiness to become an object and abandon their past as someone else's subjectivity. To bury their dead, both the photographer and the photographed. They have no wish to look us in the eyes. Thank you, Sasha. Um, and thank you, Oliver, for picking this excellent passage. I think it raises some wonderful uh, further ways into this um, splendid book. I had been thinking, um, because the, the book, of course, starts with photographs, I had been thinking about photography as a kind of engine for the book, as a motivating factor. Um, and, and somehow now in listening to this passage as you were reading it, Sasha, and also thinking about what Maria had said about wanting to um, disrupt some of the ways in which the past had been um, imagined. I was also thinking about photography as a disruptive factor um, in, the, in the book, as, a, as an interrupting quality, as a way to resist the smoothness of narrative. So maybe Maria, you could, begin this conversation about photography by reflecting on those two polarities. I, does one predominate? Um, in, in what ways did, did I'm, I'm making this up, but I'm imagining maybe starting with photography as an engine and then discovering its disruptive force. I, I'd just be curious to hear more about that process for you. Uh, thank you so much. And, uh... I suppose that um, it has uh, the, the the whole thing has uh, a very um, an evident biographical layer uh, for for myself because my father is uh, is a photographer and uh, so my uh, first uh, uh, childhood memories are connected in many ways with the photographic process which was so very different uh, at the time 
but uh, still as mysterious uh, as now. But of course, so very different. I remember. Well, maybe you guys remember the the necessary red lamp burning somewhere in the corner of a room, and uh, some some uh, some uh, newborn photographs uh, floating in the black water. I think that there is. Uh, uh, it, it really strikes some some note for me. This idea of uh, some prenatal, preexistent blackness, this blackness of non-existence, and then something, someone comes to light, floating on these waves of nothingness. And mm -hmm. uh, well, there is a passage in the, the in the book about. Uh, a certain, uh, a certain, well, black lake with uh, with uh, human heads bursting to the to the surface like like bulbs, and uh, I was referring referring to Dante actually, mm -hmm. but now when you told me when you reminded me about this thing, I see a striking resemblance with this. Uh, uh process of uh, making a photograph real and uh, yes yeah, so so my life was somehow connected with with uh multiple photographic images with a well, 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 with a number of ways uh, of connecting to the photographs and uh, at a certain point I've uh, became uh, become um, a person who is standing behind the camera and uh, uh, I again, I don't know if it is a coincidence or not, but it was about about the same age when I started writing this book for the mm -hmm. first time. I was about ten, and uh, it was a Soviet camera, Smena, Smena Vosim, and uh, I remember that uh, the general idea behind my process was pretty much the same. I was sure enough that things and objects and uh, well, trees and faces around me are not staying here for long. So I am the one entitled to, to save them in a way, to find a way of saving them. And of course, all my efforts and all the results were insufficient as well as my first approach to writing this familial story. So I was doing it in this mode of a vertep, you know, that puppet theater uh, where, the, where the play is going simultaneously on two levels, the, on the level of gods and on the level of mortals. And uh, so I suppose, uh, while making visual images uh, live always was something, some kind of a God's gift to myself. I mm -hmm. always felt there is something surreal about, uh, about this uh, strange ability. I am very much a person of words, uh, a thing of language. Uh, it is working, it, it is doing something with me, I am doing something to the language, and we are well, quite happy playing with each other, but making visual things exist is something different, and I really feel that, oh, before, before any vision to, to light. And of course, uh, the next the next uh, natural step is uh, iconoclasm. So when you are loving something too much, you you feel this urge to try it uh, and see is it really so meaningful, and what are the possible consequences of this kind of an obsession, and uh, what is quite uh, quite obvious for for for, for myself is the fact that uh, I am not alone with this obsession. It is something that describes uh, 
a couple of generations before and after myself. We are drowning in this sea of images and we are doing it in such a happy mood. We are delighted to be flooded with images. And uh, that double ambiguous, uh, multi-layered uh, feeling of, uh, of obsession and, uh, and fear because of this sudden dominance of visuality and because of what it is doing to us. Uh, I think that, yeah, that, uh, that, that's an important layer in the, in the book. I wonder, especially because it's one of the things that's enacted in this passage that Sasha just read, I wondered whether the, the kind of estrangement from the images, the, this, that wonderful comparison to the moment that the photograph becomes as if it were a museum object, if that mm -hmm. um, experience of estrangement or distance, distancing was also part of your way of weaving the story of the photographs mm -hmm. into the, the book's narrative. I think of the uh, chapter um, that you have about uh, Siebold um, and the mm -hmm. ways in which so many of Siebold's mm -hmm. photographs are inscrutable. So um, is, it, is it the case that, that particularly since you give this great comparison just now to the kind of sea of images that we're all drowning in and which are completely understandable to us because they're the things that we ourselves just experienced yesterday. If there's an attempt to kind of reintroduce that um, estrangement or inscrutability of an image um, and, and thus also to let those images, the photographs be disruptors, be interrupters of the seemingly clear narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, but uh, I, I suppose that the, 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 the material, the fabric, the idea of a photograph is this uh, disruption introduced to the process because each time you are making a photograph and now it is becoming even more vivid because of the, uh, of uh, uh, goodness, digital photography, digital photography that is making the process more easy. And at the same time, it allows you to follow all the, all the stages to uh, make these little ruptures right in the fabric of making an image. You are able to work with it. You are able to modify it, but uh, each uh, tiny thing you are doing about this image is uh, taking it further and further away from the source. So when I see the photographs in my digital archive, I virtually listen to the scissors, you know, making the sound mm -hmm. of separating something from my life. And uh, you remember this, um, this wonderful story about uh, Balzac who was, who was supposing that uh, uh, each tiny photograph that is made of him um, uh, uh, is taking some part of his essence, of his identity. Uh, he is becoming less Balzac uh, as uh, the number of photographs increases. So I suppose that, uh, that um, photographs, uh, photography like no other art is a memento mori. It is um, a reminder we are getting so used to that we don't hear the, the death toll in this sound the camera is making. But uh, in a way, in a way, the, the, the most interesting thing is what happens um, between the two photographs in this uh, no person's land uh, before or after the image uh, is becoming full blown and visible to, 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 to the world. The idea of uh, you know, losing yourself in the middle of a process or you know, hiding behind the curtains and uh, well, in a way that, uh, that, that is refreshing, this feeling of not belonging to anyone. And uh, 
it brings me back to the to the excerpt Sasha was uh, I was reading. Uh, I really love the photographs that uh, are trying to pretend they are not photographs mm -hmm. because uh, the process uh, and what the photographer expects of you, what photography as 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 the muse is expecting of you, is this direct eye contact. Mm -hmm. You are supposed to meet someone's expectations, to meet the this gaze of 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 the immediate future that photography is denying you because it is locking you down uh, time by time with every next uh, peak it is taking. It is locking you in a number in, in an enfilade of closed rooms. And you know there is the one before and one after, but you are unable to communicate, but you still are able to hide at the margins or in that blackness of non-existence. And uh, strangely, uh, strangely, it is it is something to welcome, maybe this, this uh, chance to close my eyes or to look in a different direction. In your answer just now, Maria, it, you enacted so many of the diverse themes that are in this book um, and the ways in which photography is so important. The, um, the image of the, the sound of the snip snip of the scissors or mm -hmm. um, the death knell that you um, uh, mentioned, uh, the way that sound comes into what is essentially such a visual um, mm -hmm. Image and, and of course you have the, the great passage in your poem Spolia, which has the click click of the camera and also has the, the, the use mm -hmm. of sound there as well. Um, also the, the way that your answer moved toward our contemplating our own mortality and thinking about temporality, but also thinking about subjectivity, which is another great theme of your poetry. And of course, uh, very much in evidence here um, another role that photography plays is that of materiality, these material objects, the sort of physical objects. And um, it makes me want to see if we could draw the poetry where some of these very same issues are also woven together into this conversation. And I think if we could turn now to your reading of The Body Returns, um, a section of that, it would let us continue this conversation with some poetic examples. So I don't know, Oliver, whether you wanted first Russian, then English, or how to proceed here. You're muted, Oliver. Apologies, that's why when I was speaking before, I couldn't be heard. Um, yeah, I think that's a great idea to have Maria read, read first in Russian and then Sasha in English. And maybe Maria, you could say something just briefly to, to introduce the, the poem, Tielovosvrasha, um, so the body returns. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you. And, um, um, and uh, well, uh, the poem, uh, and uh, I, I, I'm using this opportunity to show this beautiful book. Uh, translated by Sasha Dagdale and uh, edited by Vlad Axe. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so it was, the, the, actually the poem was commissioned uh, by, uh, by uh, the Hay Festival uh, a few years ago. And uh, I, uh, I, uh, I was thinking about the possibilities of writing a poem, a Russian poem about uh, the legacy of First World War, because as uh, as you know, in Russia, uh, the, the 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 war memory, memories, the, the the shadows of the First World War were, so to speak, overshadowed by the further events by the revolution and Stalin's purges and the Second World War. So it is, uh, it is a neglected war, if, uh, if one can say something like this. Uh, everyone knows that it happened, but it stays invisible. 
it stays buried somewhere uh, at the at the long uh, well, somewhere in the memories, whatever. Uh, and uh, after a while, I uh, I felt that maybe I found a form for it, and uh, that uh, it is becoming something bigger uh, uh, than the initial idea of a, of a short war poem. And uh, so I was totally sure that uh, it wouldn't work at all, but uh, whatever I'm going to write it. Um, and um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's the, the silly story behind the, behind the poem. And uh, such a translation is awesome. And uh, I felt uh, the same way, Stephanie, when I was reading it for the first time, that, that, that sort of shivers you are getting when you are encountering something of rare beauty. And uh, well, it doesn't happen so often when it comes to one's own stuff. So I'm supposed to <laughs> to claim some, some rights on the poem, but it, uh, I, I, I'm somehow able to see it as if from a distance. And uh, it is a beautiful thing. Thanks to Sasha, not to me. It's a beautiful one. Yep. Uh, so, so that's how it goes. Tiela was Комнату надо очистить, пространство надо при... Z. Комнату надо очистить, пространство надо прибрать. Y. Так говорит поэзия, живущая в Канаде, в женском теле, по-английски. Так она говорит. Once cleared, the room writes itself. И что теперь делать? Комната вычищена до блеска. Вычищена до кости, до мозга. Должна написать себя. Никто никому не пишет. W. Где они? Где мужчины, подобные Арею, поднимавшие стропила, не вмещавшиеся во врата? Где их костный мозг, их сладостные конечности, их зубы и языки? На какие элементы они разложились? Далеко под землей, в ее огородной сетке, клетки, в ее огородной клетке, клетки продолжают делать иные клетки, исходят яблочной пеной, когда земля собирает свой урожай, то, что было семенем, пробует себя семенами. Ю. Вечную мерзлоту обдает весна, как струя. Um, sorry, uh, that's just an idea, but maybe Sasha could uh, read this first uh, sequence. So that's a, that's so, a great idea that we can hear it side by side. Because, yeah. The, the body returns. Said, need to clean the room, need to clean the space. Why? So speaks poetry, the poetry that lives in a woman's body in Canada, in English. So she speaks. Once cleared, the room writes itself. X. And now what to do? The room is shining. The room is clean to its bones, its marrow must write itself. No one writes to anyone. Why? Sorry, W. Where are they? Where are the men like Ares who lift the rafters and will not pass through the lich gate? Where is their bone marrow, their pleasuring digits? Where are their teeth and tongues? Into what elements have they dissolved? B. Deep underground in the growing cells, cell unceasingly makes cell to put forth like apple gall when the earth harvests its own Underground rivers grope for their mouths, sperm seeds. 
Вечную мерзлоту обдает весна, как струя горячей мочи плавит желтые буквы, плавит буквы желтые и зеленые. И вот когда слепошарые ветки бродят по свету, поэзия, говорящая по-датски, лежащая под землей, женская, ти, мертвые, как другие, почему-то живая, карамелькой она плавится под пустой щекой глинозема, и у нее нет прав, не больше, чем... Простите, одну, одну секунду. Да, да. Карамелька, она плавится за холодной щекой глинозема, и прав у нее не больше, чем у тех, кто лежит под другим кустом кто все, что помнит, это свое отражение в плоском лице медной военной фляги. Слух и стек, им нечего больше слышать. С. Там, где было ухо, теперь земля, обнимающая место не слуха. Там, где было рот, теперь усилие корней стать истоком роста. Мертвая поэзия говорит, она говорит, я пишу, как ветер. Она, они, другие они, многие до и после. Лежат, ветра там нет, что там есть, почему им ветер. Ар, Разлой, разрой мерзлую землю, потрогай мертвую песню. Под низким небом, говорит еще одна, жившая в той же фанаре, лежащая в чьей-то земле, с сентября 22 -го года. Зерно ее тело принесло, наверное, много плода. Под низким небом я видела тысячу марширующих Иисуса. Что они делали, спрашиваем мы, стоящие на обочине? Они маршировали, они пели. Фью. Зимой 1918 года в Петрограде поэзия перестает слышать что-нибудь, кроме постоянного шума, ритмического, нарастающего гула. И если выглянуть в окошко, поля продлеваются, в них лежат и лежат и лежат, затылки запрокинуты, языки застыли. Мы увидим, метель, как тюлевая занавеска, делает знак. В комнате стало достаточно чисто. You. Spring pours like wet piss over permafrost and the ice rises and floats. Under the ice, a turmoil of green, yellow letters. And then when unseeing branches make lone drawings on light, poetry speaking Danish, lying under the earth, female, tea. Dead like the others, alive for some reason, resting in the hollow cheek of the clay like a boiled sweet, and has no rights, no more than the ones lying under the other bush, whose only memory is the reflection of self in the flat pewter face of a flask. Hearing has run dry. There is nothing more for them to hear. S. Where there was once ear, now there is earth holds the unhearing place in embrace, where there was once mouth, now roots mass, to make a wellspring of the growth. Dead poetry speaks, she says, I write like the wind. She, they, the others, many who come before and after, lie there, there is no wind. What is there? Why do they need wind? Ah, break the frozen earth, touch the dead song. Under the level, level winter sky, says another, from the same Canada and lying in someone's earth. Since September 1922, her germinating body must have brought forth fruit. Under the level sky, I saw a thousand Christs go by. What were they doing, we ask from the curbside? They were marching, they were singing, Q. Winter 1918, Petrograd. Poetry heard nothing except noise, constant noise. 
a rhythmic boom. And look out of the window, the fields multiplying, and in them the dead, the dead, the dead, heads thrown back, tongues stilled. We see the snowstorm flutters like lace at the window and makes a sign. The room is now cleared. Thank you very much. Um, I wonder if we could talk just a bit about this text as a poem and about the poems that probably have gotten slightly more attention, which is certainly their due, the title poem of War of the Beasts and the Animals and Spolia, which are poems which respond more directly to our current wars. And which I know, Sasha, because I've heard you speak about this, you found a way to translate in part by thinking about um, the violence and the kind of socially, um, the social vulgarity, the, the horror of what we're all living through in our contemporary political situation. Um, but this poem feels different in part because it takes us back to the past. And so I'm curious to think a bit about how it might offer a different version of writing history from what we were just talking about in, in Memory of Memory. But Sasha, perhaps you could start off the conversation about the poem by talking a bit about the process of translating it, because it seems to me it offered somewhat different challenges and maybe slightly different comforts from the, the other two texts, um, where because here we have this reverse alphabet structure. Um, so we have a shape which is given and um, I wonder if that in fact did make it easier or um, what other challenges or difficulties you might've faced in finding the, the very eloquent language that you do come up with here. Um, thank you. Um, the, this, I, I think this poem is beautiful and I uh, translated it in one big rush um, when I was away from home and I sat down with it and translated it and it's got an incredibly sinuous feel to it, which was really wonderful to kind of catch onto like a rope and follow. Um, it has some of the challenges of War and the Beast, the Animals and Spoiler, because it's, um, it's got quite a sort of um, modernist principle in that, uh, that Maria borrows from poetry um, in different languages to assemble the poem. And in this case, the obvious one is Inga Christensen and um, so I think Maria even quotes from that poem. There's English in the poem as well. So there was this funny exercise, uh, which in some ways is very interesting to talk about, where I was translating some bits back into Danish and trying to get hold of the original Danish because Maria used the English to give... Um, to give it an element of, of strangeness to the Russian. But of course the English wouldn't give that strangeness to the English. So I went back to the Danish and had to search for the Danish to, to insert it. And there's, there's, there's that, that principle of finding a way to, to give the same level of estrangement and comfort or the sort of dynamic between the two is quite a useful way to think about translating Maria more generally um, mm -hmm. because the, the tensions are between um, the tensions and dynamics um, are somehow not, they're in the words, but they're also outside the words, they're in the context. So it's finding a sort of context that works for the English language audience as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I really love doing that because it's a sort of electricity, I suppose, which is, is, is wonderful if you, if you feel as if you, you can capture it even slightly. The poems are really electric in Russian. Um, and I wanted to try and feel that a bit in the English. Mm -hmm. That from the bit that you read just now from the very beginning, there's that quoted phrase from Anne Carson's poetry, which of course, when we hear it in English in an English language poem, it doesn't have nearly the shock of difference that it does in the Russian, but in the typeface, of course, your, our audience can't see this, but in the typeface that's rendered in italics. So there is, again, you've, you've found a way to try to convey our need to have some distance from what we're hearing. And, and it's rendered slightly mysterious since, since Carson's not named um, and you might not necessarily recognize the quotation anyway. Um, the, the version of of excavating the past that we have in this poem 
is so tied to the body. And that's, that's in the title of the poem. It's in so much of the imagery. And, and that's a, in some ways a different materiality from what we get in, in Memory of Memory. And I wonder, Maria, if you could speak a bit uh, about the role that the body plays in this poem. And I'm, I'm also wondering whether it pushed you in your own writing as a poet in some new directions. I'm thinking of your um, extraordinary cycle, Girls Undress, um, and I'm wondering if, if something happened with this poem that pushed toward that next poem. Yes, I think so. Uh, in a way, well, both the poems were written at the aftermath uh, of uh, writing uh, In Memory of Memory. And, uh, well, in my writing practice, uh, prose and poetry are, well, never surviving in the same time frame. So I didn't write uh, poetry since uh, uh, 2015, since the War of the Beasts. And uh, it was not only because of all the challenges of prose writing, I really didn't know what to do with the language and with myself after the war broke. And, uh, and uh, yes, in a way, uh, writing this thing uh, was uh, uh, maybe an, an attempt to resurrect uh, my poetic voice from whatever depth it was uh, buried under or in. Uh, and uh, well, as poetry is uh, actually much more physical thing. And now after writing a book of prose, I can compare the experiences and uh, both are, are wonderful ones, but uh, poetry is something that works with you, not the other way around. And uh, it is happening, it is noticeable, it is working with all your body. I suppose that goes for uh, poetic translation as well, because you are, as Sasha is beautifully putting it, following the voice and your whole body is morphing along the lines you are trying to emulate or you're trying to produce. And uh, so in a way, Writing poetry is the physical act of being, of making yourself reborn, of restarting yourself. And uh, so that's uh, why, uh, why uh, that, uh, the, this poem deals so heavily with, with, uh, well, with these uh, motifs of, of uh, resurrection in body, because that is precisely what is what was happening to me in a way while I've been writing. And the other thing, in, and it is also quite important for me, this poem is a gesture of solidarity with a number of uh, female voices, very uh, famous and recognizable as Anne Carson or Ingrid Christensen, or white, uh, while masked or forgotten or not well, so as Marjorie Pittal, so forgotten in the second chapter and no one remembers her anymore. The, the, the first one, uh, the Paul's mother. Uh, and uh, so I've been, I've been, thinking that that's what earth is doing, that's what poems are doing. They're blending everything together, bringing everything together uh, into one huge melting pot. And uh, names are not relevant. What is uh, reliable is the, the space poetry is covering in a certain amount of time this uh, this uh, combination or juxtaposition of space and time that makes poetry such a such an amazing um, form of art because it is 
it is a temporal thing and still it clearly has a spatial dimension. You are able to put yourself into a poet as if it was a chamber or mm. you are uh, unable to swallow a poem as if it was a, a pill that is going to make you feel, well, not better, different. It is living in you. You're living in a poem. That's why it was so utterly important to know some poems by heart and the concentration camps, mm -hmm. because they were saving not only you, but people around you. They were, uh, uh, they were transmitting you into another realm, into another time, another place. And uh, that's what I've been trying to, to deal with. And, and uh, I'll have to, so, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I, I kept a, I made a firm promise that at about this point, we'll open it up to questions from, from the audience as well. But, but thank you and, and thank you, Stephanie, for this um, really interesting questions. I'm, I'm glad that we've had a balance between talking about the prose and the poetry, even though there's much more we'd like to ask about on both fronts. But, but now um, we've got about 20 minutes left and um, it would be wonderful to get, um, to get questions from, from the audience or comments please um, use the hands function so that I can see you um, and, then, and then put your video on um, for, the, for the question. Uh, and I'll, I'll stop the recording at this point. So yeah, I'll wait, for, I'll wait for questions to appear. If not, I'll ask one of my own.